Hi everyone, I'm Frank Rock, and welcome to the From the Hack podcast for week 4 of the 2017-2018 curling season. Today's episode is the second half of our season preview, with our focus shifting to Europe and the Pacific Asia regions. Our guests include David Murdoch of Scotland, Silvana Tiranzoni of Switzerland, and Peter Gallant, who is currently in Korea, helping prepare Team Unjung Kim for a season that will include being the home team at the 2018 Winter Olympics in Pyeongchang. Also on this podcast, we recap week 3 of the season, we introduce our new business of curling series, and we preview the event schedule for the coming weekend. But first, Canadian musician and non-curler extraordinaire, Jimmy Reed, plays us into this week's podcast. The feature event on the curling schedule in week 3 was the Everest Curling Classic in Fredericton, New Brunswick. An event that saw players from four of the top Canadian men's and women's teams come together for a winner-take-all mixed tournament with the players themselves selecting their teams for the weekend. After everything was said and done, crowd favourite Brad Gushu and his team of third Kathy Overton Clapham of Team Carey, second EJ Harnden of Team Jacobs, and lead Lisa Weagel of Team Holman won the title with a 6-5 victory over John Epping and his team of Caitlin Laws, Brent Lang, and Rochelle Brown. The lone event on the World Curling Tour on the weekend was the Spider Performance Icebreaker at the Granite Club in Winnipeg. In the men's event, 2015 World Junior Champion Braden Calvert and his team defeated reigning U.S. Champions Team Schuster 8-4 in the final. In the women's event, Team Anderson won their first title since the Boost National Grand Slam event last December with a 9-5 victory over last season's provincial finalists Team Robertson of Winnipeg. It was a good start for Team Anderson who struggled out of the gate last season as they moved up from 23rd to 15 in the world rankings. Week 4 will see the first European action of the season, with several of Europe's top teams on the men's side in Switzerland for the Baden Masters. Team De Cruz of Switzerland will look to defend their title against a field that includes top-ranked Team Adin of Sweden, as well as Team Olsrud and Team Wallstedt of Norway, and Team Fister of Switzerland. The other event on the European calendar in Week 4 is the Tallinn Challenger, a new event that will take place in Tallinn, Estonia. Seven countries will be represented in the event, including hometown favourites Team Lille and Team Vlasov. Meanwhile, teams from around the world will also be in Oakville, Ontario for the popular Stu Cells Oakville Tankard. The women's event will see Team Tiranzoni of Switzerland attempt to defend their title against a strong field that includes Team Hasselberg of Sweden, as well as both Team Moiseva and Team Sidorova of Russia. Fifth-ranked Team Flaxi leads a strong contingent from Ontario that also includes Team Madaw, Team Tippin, and Team Harrison. The men's event in Oakville will see teams from nine countries compete for the title, including Team McCormick of the U.S., two-time Briar winner Pat Simmons with his new team from Winnipeg, as well as Team Kyle Smith of Scotland and Team Baltson of Ontario. The first mixed doubles event of the season will also take place in Week 4, with some of the top curlers in the world making their way to Portage La Prairie for the Canadiens Classic. The team of Rachel Holman and John Morris will be on hand to defend their titles against all three teams that medaled at last spring's World Championships, including Joanne Courtney and Reed Carruthers. Also on hand will be five other teams that have already qualified for the Canadian Olympic trials and the past two U.S. mixed doubles championship teams. It's time for this week's Fresh Pebble. In Europe, last week marked the official opening of the National Curling Academy in Scotland. The world-class facility at Stirling Sports Village is Scotland's first dedicated curling academy, which ensures that from now on, Team Scotland, Team Great Britain, and Paralympic Great Britain athletes and community players have year-round access to high-quality ice to train on. As well as helping the sport develop from a grassroots perspective, the National Curling Academy provides a year-long training environment where coaching and support programs can take place.
In Pacific Asia, the New Zealand Winter Games Curling Competition is currently taking place in Naseby. Several top mixed doubles teams are competing in the event, including the reigning world champions Jenny Perrette and Martin Rios of Switzerland, 2015 Canadian champions Kaelin Park and Charlie Thomas, as well as local favourites Bridget and Scott Becker of New Zealand. Final results from Naseby will be available on this week's Fresh Pebble Pacific Asia. In the U.S., it has been a busy start to this season for many of the top American curlers, and this weekend will not be any different as there are five American teams in Oakville for the Stu Cells Tankard, and there are nine American teams headed to Portage La Prairie for the Canadiens Mixed Doubles Classic. A note to our American audience that the first U.S. curling report of the season was posted late last week and includes interviews with reigning U.S. champion John Schuster, national team coach Phil Drobnik, and Joe Calabrese of 12th End Sports. In Canada, the first junior events of this season's calendar will take place this weekend with the Carlton Heights Labor Day Under-21 Spiel in Ottawa. The event will include both a junior men's and a junior women's draw. Earlier this week, From the Hack posted the first podcast of a new series called The Business of Curling, focusing on the business side of the sport. We will discuss issues impacting the sport at the club level and share best practices and strategies that have been developed and implemented in areas such as club operations, event management, memberships, ice making, coaching, marketing and sponsorship. Our guest for the first episode was Danny Lamaru, the Director of Club Development and Championship Services with Curling Canada. The Business of Curling podcast can be found on the From the Hack website, our Facebook page, and on iTunes. In the second half of our season preview, the focus shifts to Europe and the Pacific Asia regions. Our first guest caused one of the major surprises of the offseason when he announced that he was retiring from competitive curling. David Murdoch is an Olympic silver medalist and a two-time world champion who is now coaching for British Curling. I think it's fair to say that many people on the outside looking in, if you will, were surprised when British Curling announced that Kyle Smith and his team would represent Great Britain at the 2018 Olympics in Pyeongchang. Many had anticipated there would be some sort of competition because there were three teams that finished fairly close to each other in the order of merit at the end of last season. Were you surprised by the process or had it been made clear to you and the other curlers heading into the offseason? To be honest, I think we're all pretty clear what you know what the process was um you know there was a certain criteria that uh, obviously if a team went done well at world championship got a medal that was probably going to put them in front foot um and obviously with the three teams leading up to the final the final build-up so the final season there um yeah like we're all pretty even we'd all done good things in tour some of us had been to world championships others hadn't others had been to european championships so in some ways we're all quite on an even keel um but at the end it was still possible for one team to probably stand out and, and that was for us obviously with, um, with going to world championships obviously a, a world medal there would probably change things dramatically but um with that not happening we're still all pretty like still pretty even at the end of it but weren't sure who was who was going to get selected, or then if they maybe decided to go with a with a trials type system? But ultimately, that wasn't really on the cards in their mind at all throughout the season, and definitely didn't uh, they didn't change their mind at the end. So ultimately, it came down to uh, you know they had to make a call, and uh, you know you have to respect that at the end of the day that um, they they made that decision. And um, you know, obviously for myself and uh, Bruce's team, it wasn't the decision we wanted to hear, but. Um, you know, I respect them for, for, for just doing it that way and, get, and uh, getting the job done. Many in the curling world were surprised when you announced your retirement from competitive curling shortly after the Olympic decision was rendered by British Curling. It was especially surprising since you are still fairly young from a curling perspective. Can you take us through the process that led you to make the decision to retire? 
I'm not an old guy, so that's a nice thing to start with, Frank. Yeah, so, um, you know, for me, it was, um, I, I was very interested, or, you know, my, my main goal, obviously, was supposed to be at the Olympics uh, in 2018, and, and obviously, with the decision being made um, at the end of, of the season there, you know, I had to really look at, you know, what I wanted to achieve now, and, and that was really the the main thing that was keeping me, you know, competitive, keeping me playing the game. You know, I've probably been a, a host of Worlds and, and done that and, and European Championships and all the other things and been on tour for a long, long time. So I think the thing that would really just continually motivate me was the Olympic Games. So with that being taken away, um, that really changed my uh, my plan. You know, I always, I always worked in, in cycles of four-year plans as to what I'd like to achieve. And um, with that not happening, I had to really assess as to, well, you know, for me, what, what was there still to continue within that year? And then I had to think really hard about, well, I had to really think about the next four years as my, my next plan that would be coming up. So with that all in mind, I thought, well, the Olympic Games is, the next Olympic Games would be over five years away. And for me, with a young family and, uh, you know, a few different things I always want to achieve in life, then, you know, you have to make a decision. And um, I didn't want to play this game until I was still you know, falling down the rankings. You know, I always wanted to go out uh, pretty much on, on top, and um, I feel I've kind of done that a little bit. You know, obviously disappointed at not getting to the to Olympic Games, but, um, you know, for me, I've got uh, tremendous memories and done everything I really ever dreamed of in, in, a, in a curling sense, and uh, I wanted to start a new chapter in life of um, doing something else that uh, I'm still passionate about. Following your retirement, it was announced that you were taking on a coaching role at British Curling. What are you looking forward to the most in this new role, and what are you hoping to focus on? Yeah, I think, obviously, you know, I have a huge passion for the sport um, to begin with, and, um, you know, as a skip in some ways, you are coaching your team on a, on a day-to-day basis, on a week-by-week basis, and, you know, that was kind of going hand-in-hand with doing some work um you know, behind the scenes in Scotland as well, between being on tour. So, you know, it was something I was thoroughly enjoying. And and I obviously really wanted to, to continue that and uh, try and give back to, you know, the, the next group of, of youngsters that are coming through. So, you know, when I was offered I was offered the coaching job, I, I really jumped at the chance with a few other opportunities around the world as well. And um, I was pretty excited about staying within the programme, staying with, the, a lot of the talent that I'm seeing coming through and we obviously had a, a new academy being set up which just uh, which opened up a few weeks ago so it's our own training facilities for four dedicated curling lanes which um, will make a huge difference to our program and, and the way we train so really trying to you know take everything I've learned over the years all the experience all the, the coach learnings that I've, I've been given as well through within this program and externally to try and help our new uh, crop of players achieve their goals as well. You had some success at the Olympics in your career, culminating with a silver medal in 2014. And this being an Olympic season, I wanted to ask you if you think it's an advantage to teams that know they are going to the Olympics heading into the season so they can plan properly, or is it better to go through a trials process such as we have in Canada? I think it's important that uh, obviously the athletes know the process. I think that's an important part. You need to know what you need to achieve. You need to know how you're going to structure your goals to achieve that. Um, but comparing Canada with the rest of the world, I'm not convinced that you can do that. Um, Canada's a different animal in regards to the amount of curlers they have, the, the setup that's over there. If you look at how many curlers they have compared to the, you know, the rest of the countries, 
Um, I think you have to really think about what your program is going, going to do to achieve its goal of getting that Olympic medal. So um, having the trials, that might not be the most beneficial to some of the countries as to you know how to go about doing that. So yeah, I'm not a fan of believing you need to. Every country needs to do the same thing or or have a trial system. I think it has to really suit uh, and be tailored individually to suit your country, and and take it for there. If if your team, you know, if your country has a, a bunch of teams that are doing well on tour, then I can probably see some merit in, in trial system if that was arranged in, in the correct way um, but I can also have a you know a, well, you know a huge amount in mind for how you structure getting over that line as to being the most consistent team over a, over a set period of the time so I think there's a lot of pros and cons either way but certainly for out with uh, out with Canada there's a lot of other merits you, you need to consider. As I mentioned earlier, you've had a solid track record in your three appearances at the Olympics. Did you do anything different during an Olympic season to help your team peak in time for the Games? I think over the course of uh, of my three Olympics, everyone's very different. I think with the way the Olympic uh, program was changing with curling over the years, the game was getting more and more professional. So it's now got to a point where it, where it is pretty much professional and that that wasn't the case back in 06 and even 2010 was a little bit different that way 2014 was certainly more um planned out and we knew exactly what we were getting with regards to to funding and a few things like that so yeah it's been very different even something from um we learned maybe better how to prepare how to schedule a season so those first couple of olympics were almost uh you know a little bit of guinea pigs just trying to trying different things trying different new things and then i would say in 2014, we, we applied the things that we'd learned previously to, to make it work. And, and I think that's all you can do. You have to try and figure out what will work for what will work for your program, what will work for you as a team. Um, different teams have different, uh, you know, different criteria that they think would, would work in, in their system. So, uh, yeah, I think you have to really you have to see what's been working for you previously in the years leading up to it. What's been, what's been your schedule? Should you do a little bit more? Should you do less? Did you do that previously, and and how and what it looked like? So there's a lot of things that uh, you have to factor in, and uh, there's not no necessarily a correct recipe in some ways. What is the one thing you will miss the most about being a competitive curler on the World Curling Tour? Oh, that's easy. Playing in front of a huge crowd in Canada. I think that's the. I think that's every athlete or player's uh, thing they'd miss. You know, just playing in front of the crowd, having fun, and. Uh, you know, that adrenaline rush of uh, playing that shot to win, I think that's the... I've got great memories of, of having a lot of those, and I'll certainly miss uh, that pressure shot. It was something I always enjoyed. What is the one thing you will miss the least about being a competitive curler on the World Curling Tour? Well, actually, spending endless hours in, uh, in airports, but to be honest, with my new role, I'll probably do just as much of that, so <laughs> I'm not convinced that's going away right now. What is your fondest curling memory? That's, that's a tough question. Just so many great memories on the ice. Uh, actually, so many, so many fun memories off ice with so many great teams and teammates. Um, two that probably stand out is obviously, you know, the two world championship wins in 06 and 09, and uh, and then one other, obviously, with the the Olympic silver medal in 2014. So it's hard to it's hard to really differentiate that because they all meant huge amounts in, in different ways and uh, and how we went about those as well. So yeah, just brilliant memories and um, you know it's great to have some video and, and photos to look back on. 
And finally, David, even though you are now retired, are curling fans perhaps going to get a chance to see you play occasionally on the World Curling Tour? Well, um, that's, we'll just have to wait and see a little bit. You know, it's, I'm certainly taking this year as I'm fully retired. I don't intend to come back. We'll see what happens. Uh, you never say never, I suppose. We'll, we'll see where, where I'm at in a year's time. But uh, I, I don't intend to be come back. But if there's ever an opportunity to play an event, and, and especially an event in front of some um, some big crowd, then I'll probably jump at that because I certainly know I'd be missing it. Our thanks to David Murdoch for joining us. And a quick note that our interview was recorded prior to the announcement that David will be the captain of Team World at the Continental Cup in January. Our next guest is a skip of one of the top-ranked women's teams in the world, Silvana Tiranzoni, who joined me from Switzerland for her first interview with From the Hack. We discuss her team's success on the World Curling Tour over the past couple of seasons, their struggles when it comes to qualifying for the Europeans and World Championships, and how her team is preparing for the upcoming Swiss Olympic trials. Silvana, before discussing your recent successes and the upcoming season, I want to touch on the fact that some people may not realize that you won a World Junior Championship in 1999, then qualified for your first Women's World Championships in 2006, and then you returned in 2007 to the Worlds, this time with two-time Olympic silver medalist Miriam Ott as your alternate. What did you learn from being around someone such as Miriam, even if it was only for a very short period of time? Oh, it's, it's always great to have, like, an experienced player or even coach around you, especially if you play in a, in a big event like this, because the, just everything is a bit different at the World Championships. The, the pressure is, is different, and even though you think you know everything, um, you might not when it comes to that level. So it's just um, really that, that week there in Japan when, when um, Hiram was our alternate, showed me how much actually how important it is to, to be experienced in, in our sport. Over the past two seasons, your team has had a lot of success on tour, especially in the Grand Slams, winning the 2015 Tour Challenge, making two more slam finals and qualifying for the playoffs in all but one Grand Slam last season. Can you describe some of the keys that have allowed your team to improve so much over the past two seasons? We are just putting way more work into it than we, we used to do. We um, hired a sports psychologist. I I reduced my uh, working hours, so I went from working 100% to only work 50%. We um, started to travel to Canada way off, way more often than, than we used to, to do, so that all started to pay off, actually. Yeah, and then we just love Grand Slams and compete against the best in a fantastic atmosphere in front of a great crowd, just uh, get the best out of us. And um, everything is always so well organized. The whole crew does everything to make the players feel comfortable. So it's very, very professional. And we, uh, we don't have those kind of events here here in Europe. So it's it's very special to compete in, in those events for us. And we just, we just love it. Your team is starting the season ranked number four in the world, which means that you receive invitations to most of the big events during the year. How does your team manage to maintain its high level of play, considering all the traveling you do between Canada and Europe? It's it's not always easy. I'm not I'm not I'm not gonna lie. So it's 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 tough to be to be away from your family all the time, from your friends. You're missing um, important events, you know, like birthday weddings, even funerals, but. Um, you know, as a if you want to be a um, great curler, a great athlete, you just you, you cannot just love um, the events and the competition. You also have to love what comes with it, like 
um, like the traveling, like the practice and all that. And as long as, as we cannot live with curling, we have to work too. So um, I don't know, it's, it's like, I guess if, if you love what you're doing, it doesn't seem as hard. When I, when I start telling uh, my friends how our schedule look like, they, they say it's crazy. But for me, it, it doesn't feel like that. I, lo- I love to be on tour. And um, yeah, as long as, as, as you love what you are doing, it's, it's, it's not as hard, actually. Despite all your successes on tour and in the Grand Slams, your team has had some difficulty when it comes to qualifying for both the World Championships and European Championships in recent years. You haven't qualified for the Euros in a decade and have not qualified for the World since 2013. Is there any explanation as to why your team has had so much success on tour against some of the best teams in the world, yet have been unsuccessful against your countrywomen at the Swiss Championships? Actually, one, one very big reason is because there is great competition in Switzerland, so there is like... Pets and Felcher around, but also like the other teams are not are not bad either. So, but we haven't been bad at, at the nationals actually. So we have been in finals like the last for, from the uh, the last five years. We have always been in the final and only were able to to win it once. So, yeah, we are not happy about these results. But at the same time, you um, have to be realistic and say we haven't played bad nationals it just we couldn't finish it and um and th- there is like no regrets you know we, we we were sitting together and say okay what could we have done differently and there is not much so if a team is is better in the final game and and, and beat you on, on the last rock then you have to accept that i guess and yeah we keep trying it's not like we um we don't believe we can win we 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 are, um, we are mentally um, very ready to win, but um, it just hasn't happened in the last three years, unfortunately. Your team will be involved in a three-team event along with Team Felcher and Team Pats to decide who will represent Switzerland at the Olympics in Pyeongchang. How much are you looking forward to that event, and does the fact that your team is the highest-ranked team in Switzerland at this point put any added pressure on you, or do you feel the pressure is fairly equal between the three top teams? Oh, I, we will be nervous. There is no question about this, but I'm pretty sure everybody will be. So it's going to be a big event for for all three teams. And I think we have so much respect for each other that I, I don't I don't see that any team is more under pressure than than the other. So and I, it's like you can't force this all to happen. So the only thing you can do is um, try to do everything possible to give um, those results a chance. To happen it that's what I believe my team um, was doing during the summer I feel like we are very well prepared and um, you know if we are able to keep our conscious brain uh, quiet and don't think about what's what's on the line we will have a very good chance to represent Switzerland uh, in Korea. The Olympics is the one major event that you have yet to compete in what would it mean for you to represent Switzerland in Pyeongchang? Well, that's, yeah, as I said, that would be a, a dream come true. I don't, I probably don't even can imagine how it would feel to be to be there, to be there with all the other athletes from different sports. It's, it's just something you don't experience, like, on a regular basis. And um, just to, to be that close or to have a realistic chance to, to go there. I, I that's all I can ask for and we are gonna work as hard as as, as possible to, to make this, this dream come true.
Will your team be playing a similar schedule of events this season or have you altered your schedule to help with preparation for the Swiss Olympic trials? No, we didn't change much except for a start practicing a little earlier than we usually do. So we started being on the ice at the end of June and um, instead of only practicing twice a week, we practice four times a week. But other than this, um, our schedule is not much different than others. So we, we plan to play 15 events. I think we are in Canada, we're playing nine events in Canada and one in Japan and the rest is in Europe and hopefully one in, in South Korea. But um, yeah, the whole schedule is very similar to other seasons. And finally, last season was a difficult one for your third Manuela Sigrist, who was injured for much of the season. How has her recovery gone and will she be 100% at the start of this season? Well, her recovery has been going very well, actually. So she's uh, back on the ice. She did all the preparation with us, all the workouts, and um, she's as good as ever. So the only thing I'm a bit worried is that she's kicking my butt all the time when we are doing practicing games. But um, other than this, um, I'm very proud of her, actually, how she was handling the whole um, situation, you know. And even though she has missed more than half of the, the last season, she was always part of the team. Um, she was very specially sending messages and give advice and even attending trainings and hold the room. So even though she was not playing, she was still um, a big part of our team last season. Our thanks to Silvana Tiranzoni for joining us. Team Tiranzoni is headed to Canada this week, where they will play in the Stu Cells Classic in Oakville, followed by the Tour Challenge in Regina and the Shorty Jenkins Classic in Cornwall. Our final guest this week is Peter Gallant, a well-known member of the Canadian curling community who now coaches Eun Jung Kim and her team from South Korea. Peter and I spoke earlier this summer, and among the subjects covered are his transition to coaching a Korean team, the state of the sport of curling in Korea, and Peter shares how he is working with Team Kim to make sure they are prepared to face the pressure of competing at an Olympic Games where they will represent the host country. Peter, several weeks ago, the Korean women's team you coach qualified to be the host team at the 2018 Winter Olympics. Can you share with us how you went from PEI to being the national women's curling coach for South Korea? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, it does seem like a little stretch, but the way it all came about was um, in Korea, it, it's a new, curling's a pretty new sport there. It's only been really 20 years since they started, so uh, the group that, that hired me had been bringing teams in from Canada and uh, kind of paying all their expenses for a week to go over there and play games against their teams and trying to learn the game that way. And, and they had brought in uh, Team Gushu on a couple of occasions, and um, I had spent some time, went to a couple of briars with, with Brad and the team, and um, so they basically essentially asked the team who they suggest for a Canadian coach because they were looking for a full-time coach leading up the Olympics. So uh, my name came up, uh, I, I connected with them, uh, I met them in Newfoundland for a week and worked with them, and then um, everything just kind of worked out from there. We came to an agreement, and and I've been there since. So um, uh, this will be my my third winter with the team. To provide our audience with some perspective, how popular is the sport of curling in Korea? Are there any clubs? Do those clubs have large memberships, or is it viewed as somewhat of an exclusive sport? Well, it's totally different than in Canada. It's uh, it's not not a social sport. Um, you're not going into curling clubs and having the bar and restaurant and all that stuff like you'd see in Winnipeg or any place or in, even here in Charlottetown. It, it's more, uh, you know, some of the kids start in high school, uh, the better ones will continue to curl and maybe they get support from sponsors and then all of a sudden that's the team from that province and 
but you know there's only maybe I think four uh, dedicated curling facilities in all of South Korea. Now there's some other skating rinks that are converted to curling, maybe you know on a weekly basis for for teams in that those provinces to practice in. But um, it's it's a developing sport, and I think ultimately you know with the right people running the programs, you know I think they'd like to get it get the sport to where it is maybe in Canada as far as making it more social so that people will start curling and curl for a lifetime, you know. But but as it is right now, it's not like that at all. Like my team's or my team's basically a, a professional team that that they practice, you know, two hours in the morning, two hours in the afternoon, um, five days a week, and and uh, you know they get paid to do that by sponsors. Well, now they're the national team; they get funded that way. But uh, and that's the way it basically is in in all nine or ten provinces of South Korea. It's just uh, just a handful of teams, and uh, they're all very competitive so yeah it's, it's a different landscape totally than than what we're used to here what is the schedule like for you are you in korea on a somewhat full-time basis during the season or do you fly in to help the team prepare for major events and or meet up with them when they travel to canada for slams or world curling tour events no it's basically full-time um once once i join the team i'm i'm with them all over uh wherever they're going i'm with them so uh, last winter, for example, I joined them in September. I think our first spiel was in Sweden, and uh, I didn't get home. I was only home two weeks at Christmas, and uh, the season kind of ended first or second week of May. So I was basically with them almost for a full eight months. So it's uh, I'm totally immersed there, and uh, in in their hometown there, they the, they put me up in an apartment right across from their curling center. So uh, basically become a resident of their small city and. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty well part of the team. I've seen several occasions where national programs in different sports will hire coaches from another country and simply fly them in and out a few times during the year. The fact that you are in Korea on a full-time basis must have really helped you build a rapport with the team. There's no question. There's there's a lot of relationship building and, and a lot of trust has to build up because um, you know I'm doing more than just strategy with them. There's a lot of technical stuff and... and uh, you know, when you're working on them on a day-to-day basis, you're you're seeing the mistakes they're making consistently, and you're able to work on them and work on them and work on them, and uh, instead of just watching them compete, um, the practice sessions are, are really important. And um, yeah, definitely, uh, I think I've built up some trust in them from them, and uh, I think it's helpful. You've mentioned in the past that the team was fairly strong technically when you first joined them as coach, but needed some work on strategy and game calling. Did it make it easier for you as a coach that you could focus time on strategy as opposed to being completely focused on technique and skill development? I mean, initially when I when I go in, I do this with any team I'm working with. I mean, I spent the first a big chunk of time initially on technical issues. I mean, I I felt there were some improvements that could be made, even though technically they were pretty strong. I just wanted to try to build some things into their their releases and their slides that would make them more consistent. And just I think that they were just missing out on some opportunities because of not being consistent with release points, for example, or not being consistent with bumper weight and and just you know things that seem pretty simple for elite teams, but we're just we needed to improve them, and so. Uh, we did, you know, I didn't just go in there and just start right on strategy, but once we get by some of the technical things, yes, strategy was, was the key. And they could go out and dominate other teams in, in a simple game, but uh, it seemed like when it got a little complicated, um, you know, one too many come around to center guard before we'd peel, 
this basic things that a lot of young teams get into trouble with, knowing when to play a run back, knowing when to come around it, you know. And uh, so, you know, those are things that it just doesn't happen overnight. You need to experience the situation. You need to make the same mistake over and over before it finally starts to sink in. And I'm really happy with the way my team has developed and the way my skip has started calling the game. And, and she's actually fine that, you know, all of a sudden she's leaving herself simpler shots at the end, you know. And uh, and with that comes a little more success. So, yeah, it, it was easier going in to work with a team that that already had a, a strong skill set. But uh, but uh, you know, I'm really happy with the improvements they've made. As mentioned, the team you coached, skipped by Unjung Kim, recently won the right to represent Korea at the 2018 Winter Olympics. Your team is clearly the highest ranked team in Korea, but Unshi Kim and her team also played well last season. Were you at all apprehensive heading into the Olympic trials, or were you confident that if your team played well, they would win the right to represent Korea in the Olympics? Uh, I, we were quite confident. Well, I was, I was really confident, and uh, I know Unji Kim is, is a good team. Uh, the last uh, season when we played her, we had a lot of success against her, and it just seemed like my skip was getting more and more confident playing that team. And, uh, you know, we got on a bit of a roll there where we beat her like five out of six times or something like that. So I was feeling pretty confident about about that team. Uh, the, the team that concerned me more was uh, the junior team that we ended up playing in the final event. Uh, they had been at World Juniors. Um, they had beaten us on a couple of occasions before, and their, their skip is a, a really, really good young player, and she can hit. And uh, and they play, she plays with so much confidence, and, you know, she's got that ability to make the cross, that was double, and then come back and make the draw to the button. So, you know, there, there was, both those teams were certainly capable of beating us. The format was a good format for us. It, it was going to require somebody to beat us on more than one occasion, it wasn't just uh, you know coming down to one final game. Um, they would have you know had to beat us like three or four times in order to be the champion. So um, I knew that that was in our court, and I thought that favored us. So and in the end, that's how it all worked out. It went to a, a third event, and we had to play the young team in a best of seven, and we beat them four games to one. There will be added pressure on your team in Pyeongchang as they will be playing in front of a home crowd. How are you working with the team to help them prepare for the distractions and the added pressure of playing such a big event at home? That that's certainly at the top of the list of things that we have to address when I when I see the team again. Uh, since we won in in uh, May and we we won that uh, spot to go to the Olympics, I haven't really, you know, I flew home to Canada, so I don't meet up with them again till early in September. So. Um, you know, at that point in time, that's certainly something that we'll have to discuss, and because you know it is a real thing, and and I'm not really sure how how it'll affect them, and there's definitely going to be some pressure there. So, um, you know, we we we're planning quite a few uh, events before that, so you know we have to make sure that um, we're putting some pressure on ourselves in each of those events, so that we know how to cope with it when it when um, you know when we're down to the crunch in February. Team Kim is a relatively young team. Do you think that being such a young team is an advantage or a disadvantage going into such an important season and with so much at stake? It's it's a hard question, Frank, because um, curling is different in in Korea. Like it's uh, it's not really a social sport, and there's like in Canada you curl for basically all your life, and and a lot of curlers don't even get into their prime until they're in their thirties. Uh, in Korea, a lot of young curlers they'll they only you know get a couple of cracks at something like this and then they end up getting married and, and, and begin a different kind of lifestyle or whatever and, and curling's off the off the table. So 
you know, it's hard for me to answer that question because I don't know where this team will go in the future. I don't know whether this is their only crack at the Olympics. Um, you know, two of the players are, are coming 26, I believe, and, uh, you know, whether they're going to continue curling leading up to Beijing, I mean, I, I don't really know the answer to that. So so this this could be it, you know, this could be, for a couple of them, this, this might be their only opportunity. So... Uh, I think there are there is pressure, and I think you know there are there will be nerves. Um, I know you know I'm hoping that you know, most of the teams there are going to be teams that we've played in the past quite a bit, uh, and that we should be comfortable playing with against them. But it's just a matter of uh, you know whether you know we've got to make sure that we're prepared to, to handle the pressures and just kind of try to block out the fact that it's the Olympics in your home country and just go out there and curl. Uh, easier said than done, but. That'll certainly be our goal. Sports psychology has become increasingly important for elite athletes in most sports, including curling. Is sports psychology something that is prevalent in Korean sports, and how have you fit mental training into your team schedule? Well, I, th- I think it's uh, it's a good topic because you know initially I knew that was something that I think they've only been scratching the surface with it over there, and uh, you know I'm not, I'm not a trained sports psychologist. I've picked up quite a bit over the years from from uh, different people that I've met with and, and sat with in meetings and you know I've I've tried to present uh, you know kind of the material that that I was aware of to them just to get them thinking in the, on those lines but I've been pushing for it hard and I know that they do exist in Korea you know Koreans got a lot of there's other sports that they that they uh, do very well in and uh, I'm pretty sure that they have some metal trainers there that help them so my team is just basically getting into that, Frank, and, and I know that later in the season they finally get the services of, of uh, somebody that's been helping them, you know, just get their mind in the right place when they're when they're playing the game. So it's something that I hope that we can continue to do, and, and uh, you know, it's obviously going to play a major role in February in the Olympics, and uh, so I'm really hoping that we can, uh, you know, get greater access to somebody that can help them in, in that area. What will be the approach for Team Kim going into the 2017-2018 season? Will you be entering more events than last season to get more reps against high-caliber teams, or will the focus be on keeping the team fresh so that they can peak in time for the Olympics? We were just really, really busy last year. We didn't play in that many slam events, but we had a lot of responsibilities being playing in Asia, you know, and uh, you know we get the Pacific Asia Championship, and there are Asian Games, and there are the University Championship, and then obviously the worlds too like we were we were on the go a lot like it seemed like I was constantly in an airplane and uh, we curled a ton last year just that we weren't getting to Canada that much we were only over I think on a couple of a couple of tournaments we played in the slam in Calgary and and uh, one the one in Sault Ste. Marie along with a couple other events but uh, you know I, I, I we haven't nailed down the complete schedule yet uh, I've, I've been in touch with kind of the people in Korea that uh, that manage the team just to try to, you know, see where we're going with that. But, uh, you know, it, it would be my preference to, to play in a lot of events, uh, certainly before Christmas. Uh, I want, I'd like the team to get in some pressure situations and and play against the team, some of the teams that they will be facing in the Olympics again. Um, you know, and then after Christmas, then we can kind of look hard at it, maybe maybe just one or two events in January, and then, then, then it's here. But you know, I'm hoping that we have a busy fall. I know the Pacific Asia Championship this year is in Australia, early November. So you know, obviously we have to go to that. Uh, 
to try to get our spot for the Worlds. But, um, you know, it, it would be my preference to, to play lots and uh, and then after the Christmas break, maybe a couple of events before the Olympics. I think the schedule would be that would be ideal for us. Korea has a history of excelling at different sports when they put their minds and resources towards it. Short track, speed skating, and golf being two prime examples. Do you get a sense that they might do the same with curling at some point? Is it somewhat contingent on strong results at the Olympics when the eyes of the country will be focused on the Korean athletes competing in Pyeongchang? The person that that um that kind of runs the curling facility that I'm working at. I mean, they initially brought me over there. A uh, gentleman's name is uh, Kyung Doo Kim. That's his vision. Like he he sees curling that way, and he's hoping that down the road it'll become a sport where everybody's playing and, and playing for a long time. Um, as far as golf's concerned, I mean that's just for the wealthy really over in Korea. It's, it's very expensive to play golf there. Uh, I think it was going to cost me three hundred dollars to play nine holes or something like that, and they. And they didn't have any left-handed clubs for me either, so so I passed on that. But but you know as you, you know as you know, curling is not an expensive sport to get into, especially at the recreational level. So I I think that I agree with you. If if our team our team or our team and the men's team or the mixed doubles team, if if uh, if one of them can get a medal there, I think it's really important for the sport in the country, and I think there is an opportunity for it to become more popular and maybe more curling centers springing up and and uh you know I think it would be great for the game if if, if some of these countries had more and more people playing because uh, right now it is just uh, it almost like they're hand picked people that are playing and uh, you know they they, they want to get it past that stage and finally, Peter, I can't let you go without mentioning that 2016-2017 was a decent season for the Gallant Curling Clan, with your son Chris playing in both the Canadian Juniors and the Canadian University Championships, and Brett, of course, winning the Tim Hortons Briar and the World Championship with Team Gushu. How proud were you of your boys last season? Well, I mean, it's uh, you know I'm always proud of them, and, and this was just like the icing on the cake this year. And um, You know, for Christopher, we, we kind of joke about it, because normally that's a pretty good season, you know, you get to the juniors and win a medal at the universities. I think it was the only medal our university won at any national championship this year. I may be wrong, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. But, uh, you know, Brett's team's been playing very well the last couple of years, and, you know, they almost won the Briar last year, except for, you know, Cooey's team played really, really well. But it was it was really, really exciting. And, you know, we just had a big event here at our curling club Saturday night for Brett. club hosted a, a gala event, and uh, Brett had a chance to speak, and, you know, just recalling how he, he just—he's always had a passion for the game, and uh, from the time he was four years old, he didn't—he didn't even care if he ever learned how to skate. He never did, really. He just wanted to curl and throw rocks. So, just to see things like that culminating into the—you know—kind of the pinnacle, other than winning the gold medal at the Olympics. I mean, winning the world championship in the Briar in the same year was—it's uh, really a phenomenal accomplishment. And, and uh, you know, the the, the team was just. Uh, Played unbelievable, you know. When if you can beat Kevin Cooley three times, beat Nicodine, um, you know, whatever they did a couple of times at Worlds. I mean, you're, that's quite an accomplishment in itself. So, yeah, very very proud of both of them. Just um, I'm not happy that they both may be a golf this morning, but uh, very proud of their curling this winter. And that does it for this episode of the From the Hack podcast. My thanks to our guests David Murdoch, Sylvana Tiranzoni, and Peter Gallant. Join us next week when we will preview the Tour Challenge in Regina, the first Grand Slam of the season. In the meantime, don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at FromTheHack, and on Facebook, and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. I'm Frank Rock, and this is From the Hack. <laughs>